Good evening. I'm Fiona Mountford, theatre critic of the Evening Standard, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all here for this Man and Superman platform. My guest tonight requires little introduction for those with an interest in British directing talent. Previously at The National, he directed Eugene O'Neill's epic drama Strange Interlude, and last year made a sparkling debut at the RSC with The Two Gentlemen of Verona. As associate director at the Royal Court, he enjoyed considerable success with productions such as NSFW, The Witness, and The Acid Test. I personally first came across his work with the Cambridge Freshers play in Michaelmas term 1994. He is, of course, Simon Godwin. Welcome, Simon. Hello. Simon, I think the first question is, before working on this project, how familiar were you with Man and Superman? Had you read it? Had you seen it? Um, no, I'd, I'd never read it, and I'd never seen it. Um, and, um, in fact, the origins um, of the uh, production was that um, Ray Fiennes uh, was in discussion with the National Theatre about finding a play um, for him to do here, and he had known the play and the part, because, in fact, he played it in a radio broadcast mm -hmm. directed by Peter Hall, and I think it had always somehow stayed with him. And Nick Heitner, on the press night, of Strange Interlude, the Eugene O'Neill play that I directed here, said to me, you know, Simon, there's another very long play in the canon. <laughs> um, so do, do you want to have a read of it? So I, I did, and then Rafe uh, came to see the Strange Interlude, and then Rafe and I had lunch together and realized that we got on very well, and Rafe's extraordinary passion for the play and my very great curiosity about its potential, sort of conjoined. What we then did was to, well, we were still sort of weighing up whether we should go forward with the play or not. We decided to do a reading of the whole play. Now, the play, um, well, our reading took about four and a half hours in the uncut version. And it was quite a shock. And in a way, there was a moment after the reading of us both looking at each other and going, well, how are we both <laughs> feeling about this? It's not too late to uh, think again. And it was at that moment, just pretty much after the reading of the whole thing, that I, uh, as it were, wrote to Rafe kind of formally, suggesting that a, a way of going forwards was to cut the play, uh, but keeping the section um, located in hell uh, in, but cut, and that the play perhaps would benefit from being in some way updated. Because I had done a production of a Bernard Shaw play called Candida um, a couple of years ago, 18 months ago, and what I learned from that was that what was very alive in the rehearsal room, as soon as the actors got into their Victorian dress, it somehow created a sort of gauze between the audience and the actors. And it seemed like if we were going to go for Man and Superman, we had to really have a kind of agenda, a kind of Shavian, dare I say, gesture behind it. So the idea of trying to lift it out of its Edwardian origins and see whether, in fact, it could live today um, as a play as much about today as about then um, was the seed of the experiment. Well, you've touched on there a number, a number of questions. I think we'll unpick a little bit. But obviously, strange interlude, nine acts in its original form. Mm. 
So you're, you, as Nick Heinz, you're obviously the Nationals' go-to director for epic drama. Do you, I mean, do you have particular skills of endurance? or <laughs> what, what are the specific challenges of such hefty pieces? Well, you've talked a little bit about the editing. We'll come back to that maybe. But overall, the, the challenges of these, these hefty, hefty pieces. Yes, I mean, it's interesting to ask, you know, why is a play long? Why is a play the length that it is? And partly my experience at the Royal Court had been very much doing plays that were very short, um, and so I had come out of those three years of the Royal Court only directing new plays, most of which were an hour and ten minutes, an hour and a half, with, a, if you like, a, an appetite for something more substantial. Now, with the Eugene O'Neill, we discovered when we were working on it that um, in America, um, when it was done in the early part of the 20th century, um, audiences, well, the 1920s, would have got progressively more drunk during the <laughs> evening because there would have been a number of intervals. <laughs> And uh, going to the theatre was an opportunity, essentially, to drink heavily. So O'Neill had built in a lot of repetition into his scenes <laughs> in order to help an audience get reacquainted. Um, and indeed, the repetition grew as the play goes on. So when we came to O'Neill, it was clear that we could happily prune that back on the basis or the hope that our audiences would be somewhat more sober at the National Theatre now than they were then. <laughs> But of course, with the O'Neill, and I hope with the Shaw, the fact that you give yourself over to a longer and hopefully deeper journey feels in a way oddly refreshing, I think, because it is a contrast to the short bursts of attention spans that we're often exposed to. So if a play deserves its length, if it has something that can't be said but in the time allotted to it, our idea of length can be reviewed. And indeed, I suppose, well, the provocation is, can anything be interesting for as long as it needs to be? I mean, is there such a thing as a finite attention span? Maybe there's only such a thing as a finitely interesting product, if that makes sense. Well, you, you talked about the editing process. As you said, the uncut version runs about four and a half, five hours. So you've trimmed it down. If you haven't seen it, it's a much more reasonable three and a half hours. There is one interval chance for a little bit of alcohol, but not yeah. too much because there's not all that much recapping. Uh, can you tell your editing process? What did, how did you go about cutting what you did? Well, in a way, it was very clear that if once we decided to make it into a sort of 20th century, I mean, one of our collaborators called it kind of era neutral production that we're trying to give it. So modern, but without being aggressively contemporary. But that was a really clear way into the cutting, because what we did was to look for all the very, very explicit references of the time, the handsome cabs, the, the, the terminology. And of course, it was also interesting for me discovering that the play was first done on the Royal Court stage in 1905, of course in contemporary costume, and he would have been the Mike Bartlett or the Yasmina Reza or any of these contemporary playwrights that we're so dazzled with today. He was that person. So the idea of, I think Shaw might have been rather bemused had we put the play on again now, and yet somehow in the shape of another era. So that was very helpful, that we could just edit all the baggage out. And I suppose in doing that, I wanted to try and look at the gender politics, which are complicated in the play. But I tried very much not to cut any of Anne's text, who is the, if you like, the heroine. But by cutting Tanner, who's the male protagonist, I'm not going to say this too loudly in case Ray fears me, but I think that. Um, by cutting him down, we could somehow try and also rebalance the play um, so that dialogue and that balance of forces in it um, would, would speak more loudly to us. 
Why is it called Man and Superman? Well, um, that's a good question, which people might offer answers to when we, when we hear from the audience. I mean, for me, it's trying to grapple with... I almost think the title could be Man or Superman. Okay. Um, in that it's trying to grapple with where does heroism really reside? And in a way, the play is partly about a man trying to recognize his own vulnerabilities and, if you like, give himself over to a relationship, uh, to love. And he passes through a phase of, if you like, experiencing what the Superman might be, but in the end is the Superman a rather dangerous presence. I mean, the play is both celebrating, but also interrogating what this Nietzschean superhero, if you like, or Superman might be, and the positives and the negatives of that, whereas the man might be a lot more easy to relate to. Yes. You touched on the gender politics. That's very interesting, because Man and Superman is often called a, a proto-feminist play. I wonder, Shaw is sometimes described as one of the early feminists, and in the play, women seem to be in control in certain ways, but they're not given much sort of leeway in the philosophical debating area, are they? That the men thrash out the big debates, really. Well, I hope, I mean, to an extent that in the health section, I mean, people will obviously f find for themselves whether that's right or not, but I, I, I feel like Anne's voice is partly the voice of the audience in the right. hell. It's partly the person that's just arrived in this metaphysical world and is provoking and trying to understand and, if you like, driving the debate in that way. Yes. Um, I mean, I think it would also be fair to say that the play is partly about the male neurosis around attachment and commitment. And I think that was to do, with, I, I dare say, with Shaw's own ambivalence about relationships and love and sexuality. And I think, in that sense, it's a rather unusual play in that it grapples, well, as one of the cast said to me, it's a masculinist play um, as much as a feminist play in that it's trying to, to, to really... Uh, flush out why men are frightened of women. Sure. Now, you said you obviously many years of work at the Royal Court, so you're used to having playwrights in the rehearsal room with mm. you. So if you could have had George Bernard Shaw with you here, what would you have asked him? Goodness. Well, we did manage to find some footage of George Bernard Shaw on YouTube. Um, <laughs> speaking in his wonderful uh, Jaeger woolen suit that I think was his great sort of uniform. And um, we just played it uh, to the company. It was only about seven minutes long on the first day of rehearsals because I felt it was so important that he should be with us as much as we, as much as we could ever achieve that. And sure enough, he's very funny and very satiric and very slippery, even in these seven minutes. But I think it really gave us uh, an indication that in the world of Shaw, nothing should be taken too seriously. He's always got a kind of twinkle. And his spirit, therefore, was something that I think we could all look after or remember or try and relate to. Sure. But I think, in a way, had I started asking him questions about the meaning of the text, we might have been here for a very much longer time <laughs> in our rehearsals. So, in a sense, it was quite a blessing that he was just looking on from afar 
smiling sagely while we, we tried to grapple with <laughs> what on earth he was talking about. His preface to the play was notorious, is notoriously lengthy, isn't it? So if that's yeah. just a mere preface, yes, it could have, could have gone on for a long time. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned, you've touched a few times on the hell scene, the famous Act 3 hell scene, which is sometimes performed as an entirely separate piece, uh, Don Juan in Hell. So, Simon, could you tell us maybe a little bit about the scene for, for those who are not so familiar, and maybe the, the challenges you face? Because it it's, it's a big ask of a scene, isn't it? Yes, I mean, he subtitled the play a comedy and a philosophy, and there was something um, in his vision of theatre that it could be both entertainment and it could also be a proper philosophical inquiry. And I imagine or feel that was part of his project to sort of, well, to revolutionise the stage. And in a way, it feels like a very modernist gesture to be able to fling out conventional structures and go well, let's now go into the unconscious where all rules of narrative are suspended in favour of a very kind of um, potent debate about what we're all here for. And in a way, I think the hell section gives him an opportunity to articulate a sense of evolution, which is not a fashionable idea now, the idea that as human beings, we can strive to make the world a better place. And yet, inside his satirical vision, there is a great idealism, I think, in Shaw, a great sense of humanity, which I find, you know, very, very moving. But it's unusual, and it isn't narratively crucial. So, and in, he himself always said, you don't have to do this bit. I mean, I think there's a, one quote I found, which is that Shaw describes seeing the whole play himself uh, uncut and saying, on seeing this, he nearly died. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, I felt like it, 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 it was beyond just a conventional play. He, he was dreaming of something bigger and possibly impossible. Um, did you ever think about not doing the house scene? Was that ever, did it ever cross your mind? Or are you and Nick or Rufus decided you were definitely going to do that? Well, I think also for Rafe, it's, it was a very big part of, yeah. of why the play felt important. Yeah. And I think the play would succeed very well as a um, comic boulevard rom-com, if you like. Um, but somehow the presence of hell, demanding as it is, does give everything, I hope, um, a sort of underpinning of substance, which I hope makes the banquet um, a little bit richer, or substantially richer. Perhaps we could talk, turn now a little bit, talk about the casting. Um, you've talked about Ray Fiennes was sort of attached to the project from the word go, and it's a towering central role of John Tanner, but also the wonderful Indira Varma as Anne and some other lovely lead actors. Was casting all this an easy task? Did it take a long time? Did you have set ideas of who you wanted, or was it more of an organic process? Well, one thing I discovered when we did this reading, um, however it was over a year ago, was that there was a tendency in, in actors, quite understandably, to, to turn of open what I called the Shaw draw. <laughs> ah, this is how Shaw should be delivered. A certain sort of poshness, a certain sort of period playing style. And I, I, I realized that I, I simply couldn't relate to, to, to this, uh, this way of being, uh, not least because of the role of a director is essentially to monitor truth. I mean, it's essentially to go, well, that's not quite how I've experienced that moment. So you're trying to bring out honesty, I suppose. And because I myself, of course, had not been around at the Victorian time, I, I found my, my own set of references really slippery. So as soon as we decided to put it in a more modern setting, suddenly it opened a space up to find actors who could, over a long period of time, get to grips with this language, but not feel like they had to give a Shavian performance, in quotation marks. 
And another thing that really helped us moving from the casting to the rehearsals was this lovely phrase of Stanislavski's called the magic if, which is simply, if it was happening to you, what would you feel? What would you say? What would you do? And that was very helpful for us. At each moment where we came upon a difficult or a complex speech, it was to go, put it in your own words, one, and two, tell me, show me how you would do this moment, or how you would treat this person, or how you would listen or reply to that. So, in a way, both the casting and hopefully the process helped us to find a methodology which hopefully makes the play speak to us all a bit more vividly than it might have done otherwise. I like that idea, director's role is to monitor truth. That's, yeah, that's not come across very good, interesting. So when he was discussing Man and Superman, Shaw talked about his intellectual seriousness. Now, do you think modern audiences respond to all Shaw's philosophizing and debating differently to the audiences of the day? Well, that's not something I can really answer, I suppose. Because uh, you weren't uh, in, uh, yes. Uh, um, not being there. I mean, I think what... I mean, Shaw himself, of course, was a very committed Fabian, and um, he did practice his rhetoric speaking on, the, on street corners. So he was very attuned to what helps an audience listen. And I think his use of humour is something that's the great leveller. I mean, it's the great um, salt, if you like, in the soup. Uh, and he, and he, you'll notice in the play that there are moments when someone will give a very long demanding speech, and then another character will say something like, my God, you talk a lot. <laughs> so he's able to somehow both take himself seriously and undercut himself. And that's, I think, a very clever yeah. device. Yeah. Um, so just at the moment when you're thinking in an audience, I can't bear it anymore, <laughs> somebody will say exactly what you're thinking yes. to the person who is talking. Yeah. It was, it was, I laughed a lot during it, and it was a pleasant surprise. You think, oh, sure, maybe not. But it was very funny. It was, yeah. So, um... What unsettles the hero, John Tanner, throughout the action? It's a much-repeated phrase he used. It's the life force. Mm. And it's, really, I'd say, one of the central concepts of the play. Could you tell us a little bit about that? You know, unpick that a little. What is this life force that is mm. giving John Tanner such angst? I mean, as you're asking the question, I'm feeling a sense of anxiety about <laughs> answering it, because even though I've been with the play for so long, <laughs> its mistress remains still intact. Um, I think the life force is this sense that I was perhaps speaking about, about this possibility for evolution. I mean, Michael Holroyd, um, the biographer of Shaw, who came into the rehearsals, um, spoke about Shaw's belief in Einstein as the great version of, in fact, the Superman. Okay. I mean, the man who had reconfigured what the brain, our understanding of the universe, essentially. And the question I guess the life force relates to is, what is that feeling inside all of us which gives us a hope. The hope that we can be happier, we can be better, we can make tomorrow better than today. And each of us in this auditorium probably has a word that we use to describe that feeling. It might be hope, it might be conscience, it might be duty, it might be something to do with the world of religion, but somehow they're all words, I guess, to try and grapple with this sense that, as somebody asked in the play, has the colossal mechanism no purpose? And that question will never be resolved, and yet somehow we feel ourselves drawn to grappling with it. And I think Shaw's answer to the question, however provisionally, was that maybe there is a force which 
encourages us to keep trying. Oh. The, the printed text, I don't know if, if any of you have looked at it, I'm sure some of you have, is really astonishing. In the Penguin Classics edition, for example, the stage directions at the beginning of Act 3 take up an eye-watering three and a half pages of extremely close type. Do you find that sort of thing useful, or, or do you ever feel like short, telling short sort of back off a little bit and you're, you'll do it your own way? Do you read them and discard mm. them, or do you, how do you deal with those sort of minutiae? Well, my hunch is that at this time when the play was first done, directors were only really beginning to emerge. I mean, we're moving out of an era of the actor-manager, so yeah. the, the star were much like, I guess, if it was in the 19th century, Rafe would have played the part of Jack Tanner, and he would have produced the show, sure. and sort of been, as it were, the director. So Shaw and Harley Granville Barker, himself a great director that played the part of Tanner when it was first done, were trying to think about how more control could go to the writer and to the director okay. rather than the star actor. Right. So the stage directions become really, really important in trying to wrestle that control back. Now, of course, as director today, I don't have to fight those battles because... If anything, the last hundred years have very much seen the rise of the director, possibly you could argue at the expense of the actor. So the stage directions are helpful to read, but also quite liberating yeah. to discard. <laughs> very, very good. After this, are there other Shaw plays that you might like to tackle? Are you tempted to any on your wish list, or do you leave Shaw um. a little bit? <laughs> Well, I, I, I think it's been quite an intense relationship that I've had with him over the last year, so I'm, I think we're probably both going to have a little yes. break. Um, but, um, I mean, I think Pygmalion is, 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 a, is a wonderful play, yes. and I think I sadly didn't see St. Joan when it was here. I wish I had with Anne-Marie Duff, because I've heard incredible things, and going back and rereading that play made me think, goodness, that's a, a wonderful, wonderful play. Yeah. So I really hope that I do come back to him in due course, yes. Sure. Now, I was surprised, really pleasantly surprised, by the sort of the romantic comedy elements of the play. And I never expected to think of Shaw, of all people, as, a, as an early precursor to Richard Curtis. Mm. Um, what discussions did you, Rafe and Indira, have about the romance in the play? Well, I think what's lovely is that he writes a lot of backstory for the two of them, because um, they knew each other from their childhoods, we discover, and they have a lot in common. And yet, like all these very interesting people we know from our past, it's almost like in the early stages, they know too much about each other. Yes. So there's a sort of paranoia, if you like, that it's too intimate and that their self is somehow threatened by the fact that they have this long past. And a lot of the play is also about this idea of how do you become a revolutionary? Do you have to leave your past, your family, your early relationships behind to remake yourself as the new man, as the superman? And a lot of Indira Anne's project is to say, you can have all of that and have love. And I think this relates to the male anxiety I was speaking about, the notion that either I'm a superman or I'm a man. Yes. How do I bring them together? Yeah. So what we did was, was all the characters in the play wrote very detailed biographies, which was, um, who am I? Where did I grow up? Uh, what school did I go to? What are the other books Jack Tanner has written? So we had a long chronology for everybody yeah. so that we could then start to go, ah, fine, in this moment, 15 years ago, we were on a beach holiday <laughs> together, and um, we can remember that. When, and when I say Rachel Rosetree, as he does to, the, to Indira at some point in the play, we've got a very clear picture of Rachel Rosetree. Awesome. Because as much as possible, you're as a director always trying to say, you don't, please, it, not to act, 
Rachel Rosetree, but remember Rachel Rosetree. And if we get that right, it can, that can hopefully feel rather different. I found the ending, the last act, I was thinking, it kept reminding me of Much Ado About Nothing. Mm. You're sort of willing these two to get together against all... Yeah, very... Um, so, how many times have you watched the production now? And did you ever think tonight I'm just going to sneak in at the back of Treasure Island instead and sort of pretend I was there? <laughs> or tell them I was there? Well, look, I'm very excited about seeing another play that's not um, A Man of Superman, because I've seen it a lot of times, you're right. And I think... Uh, uh, I mean, I've, yeah, I've, been, I, I've been watching it every day for, what, two, two weeks, probably, so... But do you... St I mean, just, I, talked to, I saw a preview, and I talked to Simon uh, at the interval of that, but do you stay fresh? You watch it, I don't know, eight times mm. in a row, night after night. Do you still, on the fifth time, are you still thinking, actually, I'm going to tweak that, but... Or, or do, you, do you zone out a little bit, or are you still absolutely fresh to it? Well, I suppose it's so... I was thinking about this very strange thing that you're speaking about, Fiona, of going, when the play works, it's like even I have... See, are seeing it for the first time. Right. And it's a very strange thing. You think, how could, I, how could that ever happen? And yet, when it does, I can enjoy it as an audience would. And I think it's probably something to do with spontaneity. Right. Which more and more you realise is essentially the aim. To get to a level of relaxation that a line, a moment, a looking, a way of listening can just be fresh. Yeah. And that's the search as well as all the technical challenges that, of course, go on with a player with multiple scenes and a car and um, pro projections that you'll see, those of you who are watching it tonight or to come. And also the whole journey with the projections, the images on the wall, was at what point do the, those images become distracting from the language and at what point do they serve the language? And actually that took a long time in previews of going, oh, I think we need a bit more there. Let's bung on an image of a dinosaur. Uh, uh, and then you realise, mm, maybe the dinosaur image doesn't really help. Okay, so we'll cut that. And then, you know, and then you have the next day, you sort of think, oh, God, were we right to cut the dinosaur? Uh, and then you kind of go, oh, put the dinosaur back. No, no, we're right to cut the dinosaur. So you, you go around in circles. So have you been rehearsing full-time during previews as well? Yeah. Because yeah. that's been quite a... Yeah. been long days. They have been long days. That, that is the challenge of doing a long play, because you're starting at seven and you're finishing... A, the show at 10.40, and then you'll sit with your technical team and give notes and talk about the show until whatever, quarter past 11, and then you go home and you're in at 10 o'clock. Goodness, so that's, well. Working so again. Mm. You'll, you'll be back at the National very shortly to start rehearsing the Bow Stratagem, which actually opens three months to this very day on May the 26th. <laughs> See, <In> <laughs> <laughs> I sort of conveniently <laughs> forgotten that, Fiona, but thank you for reminding me. Just, um, That'll be, that play will be quite a change of pace from this, won't it? Are you looking forward to something that isn't written by Shaw? Or well, I have, I mean, the, the other thing I learned at the Royal Court was all plays benefit from being done quickly. Um, <laughs> so um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was just having some meetings with the Maxis today um, uh, on both strategy and realising... Yeah. I mean, the other thing about Shaw, of course, is he never writes a pause. Okay. It's not in his vocabulary. What he would do is to write punctuation in a very detailed way, colon, semicolon, full stops. Pauses, he knew or for his work, were death. Okay. So the drive, the muscularity of the kind of rhetorician, the political speaker, is something we've really had to discover. Yes. But going back to Farquhar, who is in the line of these Irish commentators on England, you, you realise that also that tradition, and of course like Shakespeare, who didn't write pauses either, um, the momentum of these writers feels very exciting. So in a way, bringing the momentum ashore back to Farquhar Yes. It's something I'm quite keen to do. Sure. 
And we were talking about lengthy drama and so on. You're saying at the Royal Court, an hour, if it's over an hour and ten minutes, you know, things are... Do you think this drift towards shorter dramas, do you think that is our preference? Now you're saying we like sort of getting the meat of a lengthy drama, but do you mm. think overall we do prefer these sort of 70-minute dramas and then we go and have dinner afterwards? Mm. What do you think sort of the trend is? Well, I'm sure most of us in the audience would say that nothing cheers us up most when we arrive at the theatre and we ask how long it is and someone <laughs> says one hour, 15 minutes. I mean, we, <laughs> I mean, we can't help feeling oddly elated. Um, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> And yet, um, um, there is something else available to us. Um, and if we can get over the horror of someone saying, well, it's three hours, 40 minutes, um, and somehow give ourselves to that, uh, I can't help feeling like they, it's great when British theatre has a balance. Yeah. Yes, it's great to have the zingy, zesty gestures, but we mustn't, I don't think, lose sight of the wish for real debate yeah, and big operatic gestures on the stage. And the other thing about Shaw is that his, his epic imagination, he'll take you to the underworld, if necessary, into the, I mean, beyond any boundaries that you could imagine, feels invigorating. Um, certainly for, for me, and I, and I hope the actors, and I hope, I hope at times for the audience. Look, there's so much here we mm. can talk about, but I'm sure many of you are keen to stock up on some caffeine before you settle, settle down and enjoy the actual play. I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap things up. So all that remains for me to do is to thank you very much for coming, and of course to thank our guest, Simon Godwin. Well, thank you.